0: QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their Elders, Laws, Customs and Creation Spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been
1: ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students, and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges, and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Brett Mason. Brett was a senator for Queensland from 1999 to 2015, and he later served as Australia's ambassador to the Netherlands. His ties to QUT, the Uni podcast, is produced go way back. He lectured at the School of Justice in the early 90s and is now an adjunct professor here. This episode is a widely ranging conversation that covers many of the triumphs and frustrations of Brett's career, the state of Australian politics, and Brett's upcoming book. The link for that is in the show notes. I'll also mention Brett is a conservative politician. If you're a bit of a bleeding heart little L liberal, as Jodie and I are, don't let Brett's party put you off. As I think this episode proves, there is a great opportunity to have interesting, engaged, and valuable conversations with folks who have different political leanings than ourselves. I got a lot out of listening to this conversation, and I hope that you do too. Without any further ado, Brett Mason.
0: Welcome to How To Academia. Who the heck are you?
2: Yeah, good afternoon. My name is Brett Mason. I did, in fact, lecture here when the School of Justice first opened here at QUT in 1991, just after Fitzgerald Plurry.
0: Yeah. How did that come about?
2: So, you know, I was working in Canberra as a lawyer, as a, as a Commonwealth prosecutor, and then the, the Attorney General's Department, and I saw an advertisement, <laughs> and I thought, oh, that'd be interesting. What an interesting sort of life that would be. And like I just... Been to Cambridge actually, and did a, the M MPhil in criminology, and uh, I hadn't really thought about becoming an academic, but I thought well, that sounds interesting, and I phoned up and had a chat with the then head of the, the department. I think it was. I don't know what department, whatever it was. It was very small back then, and I thought that sounds interesting. Went up for the interview, and it was successful, and 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 uh, I stayed several years, and then from there, Charity <laughs> I went to. Uh, I stood for pre-selection for the Liberal Party, as it was then, for the Senate in Queensland, and was successful. And in my mid-30s, became a, a senator for Queensland and was re-elected well, elected three times. So I uh, resigned in 2015 from the Senate to become Australia's ambassador in The Hague. And that, of course, is what is being ambassador to the Netherlands. You are a diplomatic Representative to the International Criminal Court, the International Court, Court of Justice, to the uh, Permanent Court of Arbitration, and the Organisation uh, for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons—it has all those sort of public international law dimensions as well. And then, when that finished, I, I, you kindly at uh, your at uh, your school, a School of Justice, that me an adjunct professorship. I currently am on the council at Griffith University and also chair the National Library of Australia, chair the council.
0: That is quite a career history. What made a young Brett Mason decide to study law?
2: God, God, isn't that, I should have a a, a, witty, a a witty and ready answer for that journey, but I don't. I think really, I didn't know what to study particularly. I did arts and arts and law, and i always enjoyed the arts more. I wouldn't be the first student to say that. I did philosophy and political science and the arts at, at ANU in, in Canberra, but <laughs> it was a bit easier to get a job when I had a, had a, had a law degree. Mm. And so I worked as an associate for the Supreme Court judge for a year and then worked as, as a common prosecutor. I didn't look very old. And I think I still had braces on when I was prosecuting, actually. Whoa. <laughs> I think I did. That's like
0: some hard work right there, building your credibility.
2: Yes, it was. It was. I had braces on very late in life. And yes, I remember the the, the magistrates used to treat me. Actually, they treated me quite well because I looked so, you know, um, perhaps so pathetic. I don't know. I'd like to think endearing, but I think pathetic is probably closer to the truth. <laughs> but I loved it. I, I loved being a prosecutor, and it was a... You have to learn to get up out of your chair and speak in public with an argument. Yeah. And that's not easy, you know. That, I found that quite difficult at first. But I... You know, in our in our, in our our lives, Jody, whatever you decide to do, sometimes you have to learn the techniques, and I had to learn it.
0: I mean, this is one of the things that I think is interesting, is that... I think people think that when you go into law, you kind of have that natural ability to do that. But it's actually a small part of the law Mm -hmm. where you are doing that. Why did you decide to be a Commonwealth prosecutor?
2: Because I thought it might be, uh, I quite liked, I was 24 or something, 25. I thought it might be a bit glamorous. It wasn't. (laughs) <laughs> and I thought I might learn some useful skills about you know, advocacy. Yeah. You're quite right. Most lawyers don't ever appear in court. that's expensive and a waste of time and money, you know. But obviously as a common prosecutor, you do. So you're prosecuting you know, tax, immigration and so forth. And because it was in the ACT back then, we also prosecuted local crimes. So there yeah. were you know, murders and rapes and the rest of it. Jeez. So it was, quite a, it was a great education for someone who was you know, 25 years old.
0: You have to be across so many different areas of law,
2: though. Very quickly.
0: Very quickly. You, you SWAT,
2: really, and you learn very quickly to to work out the elements of, of, of a crime and can you prove it? And you don't want to make too many mistakes. You know, it's a lot of pressure, actually, for someone who's quite young. Yeah. And people, some people just didn't manage well at all. I managed because I worked hard. Yeah. You know, I've never been shy of hard work, even though i found just the, the horror, having to stand up in court in an argument, sometimes uh, a little bit distressing, you know. But you do get used to it, like everything in life. You get used to it.
0: How did you deal with that sense that maybe I might fail here? Leaping right in with the big questions.
2: Yeah, well, I I, I didn't think I would fail because, because I thought people who are you know, even less talented than me <laughs> can do this, so I should be okay. If I work hard enough, you know, I I wasn't lazy, but I did, I never felt secure as a lawyer. You know, I've spoken to people who are really senior lawyers, senior barristers who have been at the bar for 40 years. And they say to me, you know, Brett, when I walk into the, into, into the, into court, I'm still scared. Because you never know what's going to happen. Yes. So even after, these might be, you know, I was going to say QC, KC, you know, Senior Counsel. Yeah. Because the, the the fear never leaves you. The fear of failure never leaves you, even when you're very experienced, let alone when you're 25, even when you're 65, it's still there. You know?
0: I think that's the thing that people don't see. Like, they see the success and people just doing it, and we don't see all of the layers of stuff that's behind that and law is a lot about confidence
2: like politics is about confidence and about presenting an argument politics even even more so is you know advocacy often i shouldn't say this but sometimes at a superficial level yeah you have to know a lot sorry a little bit a little bit about a lot yeah and just skim the surface but you have to have lines on just about everything you don't have to be able to drill down too far necessarily, mm. but you certainly need to have a, a bank of knowledge that you can quickly draw upon. Mm.
0: Why did you study criminology?
2: Because I found criminology fascinating. I love criminology. I studied it as part of my law degree yeah. you know, as undergraduate. And when I worked in the Attorney General's Department and then fact, when I worked with the judge as well, I always loved criminal law. <laughs> and so... <laughs> It sounds terrible. I, I just love the romance of it, uh, even though it's often in many ways terrible. But there is something about criminal law. There's a humanity about it, I think, that I, I took to. And so when I could go overseas to study, I thought, I'll, I'll do that. And when I was offered a job here, all you know, 30, mm-hmm. more than 30 years ago, I thought, wow, that'll be great to do it for a few years. And I've got to say it was. It was a great time of life, I have to say, and I enjoyed every minute of being at QUT more than 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, It was a great time of life.
0: What do you think the... I guess, what do you think that criminology contributes to criminal law that's important? Can the criminal law not just stand on its own?
2: I think an understanding, an intellectual or academic understanding of, of, of crime, particularly, I think... For a barrister and people that support barristers, is important. The, the criminal code itself here in, here in Queensland or common law in, in, in other jurisdictions is really just the skeleton, you know, it's the pointy end. It's not the problem.
0: Yeah, I like that. That's really insightful. So, what's it like living in Queensland during the Fitzgerald inquiry?
2: Oh, well, you know, it's funny, it upended everything, didn't it? You know, I was in Canberra and then Tony Fitzgerald came along and uh, you know the the National Party and Sir Joe Bjelke been in power a long time, and so sort of, uh, Joe was forced out by his own by his own party initially, of course. And Fitzgerald Inquiry came along and it upended everything. You know, it really changed Queensland. And even though you know politically I'm conservative, and that's it's no discovery for anyone listening to the podcast. I think. It had to change, Queensland. I remember Kevin Rudd once saying that Queensland had a choice: whether to become Alabama or California. Yeah, right. And we chose California. And there's now an of the truth in that. You know, I don't think Joe was all was all bad, but you know, it was very secu- it, was, it was very sec- it was secure in the sense that there wasn't great government debt, and you know, there was investment in the state. But there wasn't really a a flowering of of the state, and and Tony Fitzgerald, the Fitzgerald report, and all the, the, the supplementary reports into you know administration, electoral laws, and the rest of it, underpinned a transformation of this mm. state, and it's never been the same since. And and frankly, it's a better place for it.
0: Because I think that I mean that's one of the things that's really interesting to me about the Fitzgerald inquiry, and I haven't reflected on a lot, but I feel like. Public inquiry serves many functions, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, entirely selfishly, dear reader. But the Fitzgerald Inquiry, I feel like, like it's marked about police, but the reaches of that inquiry go so much further transformatively on a socio-political level than I'm going to say almost any other inquiry that I can think of, even the you know the Wood Royal Commission. And like, I feel like there is something unique about the Fitzgerald Inquiry in Queensland's history it was about building an identity
2: I agree with that you know people talk about Costigan you know these great inquiries into criminal justice and organised crime and and, and the rest of it no Fitzgerald was as you say Jody, far broader Mm. and it had a a, a, an impact and yes some of it was legislative clearly much of it that was about education and indeed this very school was a Mm. product originally of it similarly at Griffith University but also culturally it changed Queensland. Queensland is not what it was like when my, mm. my mother grew up here. <laughs> it's just not the same place as it was in the 1950s. You know, it's yeah. very, very different.
0: I mean, I agree. Like, I think, it, I think it was really quite revolutionary, which is interesting because I don't think public inquiries very often are. Like, I don't think we often get the bang for buck that we should out of public inquiries. But I'm interested in, like, I guess because of the breadth of your experience, quite bluntly, what is the point of public inquiries and this kind of investment that we put in them, I know this is like outside of the scope of.
2: No, look, it's, it's, it's a fair question, and, and really, it's how you write, the, you know, the terms of reference, and then whether you have a commission or a commission of inquiry that's prepared to act uh, to, to look closely and make robust suggestions and suggestions that are possible, you know, that parliaments can de- governments and parliaments can deal with, and you know, finally, of course, you need. Politicians and governments that are sometimes brave enough to act on the recommendations, and that doesn't happen all the time. Professor Peter Caldera, the former you know, Vice mm. Chancellor, here, his recent report, the Queen's and Go Administration, is, is, is terrific, really, because it's practical. You know, Professor Caldera understands administration, mm. he knows a lot about government his recommendations are not merely sort of, you know, academic and wishful thinking. They are practical and, and driven by a, a, a solid understanding of what's, what's possible. Mm.
0: I mean, that, what, that what's possible question is so important because even if you look at the... Like, a lot of our large-scale public inquiries, like the deaths in custody and the Stolen Generations inquiries and these things that are kind of about national identity... But so many of the recommendations have not been implemented because it's not possible in one way or another. And the the inquiry only goes so far and can't actually independently change the social conditions in which the thing that is inquired about exists, which I think is a limitation we don't understand about public inquiries. It's a bit of a bugbear of mine. Okay, so you are in the School of Justice. What do you remember about your time here? You say it was lovely? (laughs) Tell me more. It
2: was small, you know, because I I turned up, and a little bit later, I I had to leave leave Canberra, and I rushed up here to to Brisbane. I still remember driving up all those years ago, and that sort of started the academic year as I arrived, and it was an adventure for me, but also for everyone, because this was new. Yeah. And I remember, you know, we had... we had Fitzgerald, I still have it, a, a burgundy-covered, covered you know, inquiry. I remember still having it at home and looking at it. And quickly had to write lectures to get ahead of where we were. <laughs> so we had to catch up, and I'd never done that before, because, you know, I was never, I'd never been an academic. But Simon Petrie was, who was the first head, and he was very supportive. He was always very, very good to me. And I taught Introduction to the Legal Systems, I remember, and I took several classes in that. And uh, back in those days, we also took classes in the LLM, the Master of Laws, down at Gardens Point, and I did the Introduction to Criminology, or Theoretical Criminology, down, down at the Gardens Point. And it was, it was a very small unit back then. Mm. You know, we, I know we expanded later on. I must say, after I left, it got a lot bigger. Maybe I was holding it all hundred percent not. <laughs> I'm,
0: like, I'm naming you a founding scholar.
2: Yeah, well, uh, it's a long time ago, but, but I, I loved it. And the people I worked with were terrific. And when you're embarking on something new, you know, Jodie, you, you feel good about it because you're the first, you know.
0: So all of that practice standing up in front of courtrooms must have helped with uh, standing up in front of students.
2: Helped me in honestly because I could lecture with sort of passion and interest, and I was, what, 28 or something. I wasn't that old, and, and I didn't look that old. You know, I really wasn't real <laughs> And so the photographs, I didn't look much old than the undergraduates, not really. And so I turned up, they didn't know, who's this guy? <laughs> yeah. I was a lecturer. So it was quite a, for me, it was a little bit difficult at first, gaining their respect or at least their attention. But because I was, again, well prepared, and I know it, you know, I, know. I, I, was, I did things that I, you probably couldn't do these days. i walk along and say, jokingly, hey, mate, get your hair cut. You know, this sort of stuff. I'm told it's banned. You can't do, can't do things like that anymore. These days, people are far more conscious of you know doing the right things by the students. But back then, you could have a bit of... <laughs> I had a bit of fun at their expense and never got into any any trouble. Great colleagues. But I actually enjoyed the big lecture halls
0: yeah and in those days
2: people came to lectures yeah and and be literally you know 150 in the class well, i love that you know but
0: i love that too brent yes
2: and if you can capture the audience and hold them for three quarters of an hour now you can't just talk you've got to do things in different ways and get you know jump down and say to listen and ask questions you know you you if you're any good as a communicator you can do that but it takes a bit of practice, mm. and again, you know, built on what I did as an advocate, uh, as a lecturer, and they're great skills, Jody, aren't mm-hmm. they? They're, they're such great skills. They're great skills.
0: And it can be so like it can be so deeply rewarding and so much fun and so much, like I feel like it's like you learn as much from in, engaging with students as mm. you're kind of imparting knowledge Absolutely. to students, which is one of the things I think that is deeply sad about the diminishing lecture room is that that loss of that intellectual engagement with students. I agree. It's, I think, a real loss to the academy and to professional development. So do
2: I. Oh, I totally agree with you. Because students are fun. You know, it's great when you've got, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. <laughs> They're actually great fun. This, well, I always enjoyed it, enjoyed yeah. them. And I get a lot from it. You nearly, you sort of, now, Bill Clinton used to say, you feed off the crowd, you know. You sort yep. of feed off the, the energy of the, uh, of the crowd. And I, I know people argue that, you know, lectures are an old way, but if you're good, as I was arguing, if you're good, you can halt it.
0: hundred percent.
2: And I, I am not one who's ever who believed that, you know, lectures have had their day. I'm not saying it should be the only way we educate, I'm not suggesting that. But if you're any good, it's a great way to bang, get into a subject and hold a class. And everyone loves it. Yeah. But now, you know, there tended to be this argument that, oh, because some people weren't very good at it. Those that were, you know, shouldn't be encouraged. I mean, I also... <laughs> even around th- my day, Jada, even in my day. I know. mean,
0: like I agree. But I also <laughs> think it's like it's something else that takes work. Like
2: it
0: it takes work, and there needs to be this kind of reciprocal trust about why you're in the room, around you're in the room to generate and share knowledge and to learn. And I feel like, I mean, sometimes that trust has been lost when people are rubbish and not doing the work. But I feel like that's in any kind of industry that you're you're in. But there's a genuine loss there for me. So politics was next.
2: Oh yeah, Look, it, it's, it, it there's a bit of luck in it, you know, politics is you know, all about timing, you, you would, I'm sure you've heard that, and what happened is I was a, I've been in the Liberal Party in, in Canberra, not heavily involved, but I mean, you know, my parents always believed in hard work, you know, thrift and personal responsibility, you know, sort of conservative values, and, and I joined the Liberal Party here in, in, in Brisbane. And I lived in Newfoundland, in a unit in Newfoundland. <laughs> and I hadn't intended, of course, to run for parliament. That was not an intention. I thought one day I might work in politics as a, as a speechwriter or as a private secretary or something, you know, as an advisor. Yes, but I'm not as a politician. <laughs> and I joined the Liberal Party and I went to a couple of Liberal Party conventions and thought, I could do as well as those blokes. And they were nearly all men. Not yeah. all, but nearly all men. I can do as well as those blokes. And people were still laughing now and then. you, know, you, know, you, hope you look at, look, at, Take a look at yourself, innit? You know. And so I stood and I thought about it a bit and then stood and beat a sitting senator actually for the number two spot. And in those days, the Libs used to get one and two, and they'd get two spots. And one just, actually, it was a bit, all a bit controversial by one vote, 113 to 112. But in politics, a win's a win. A win's a win. And even one vote's enough. Very controversial. And I was working here at school. And I remember walking in. Because it was in the paper. On the front page, of the paper. Yeah. <laughs> and I walked in. And Simon <laughs> Beek, said, um, Brett, could you just come in here for a second? <laughs> 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 He's a great and all. Uh, uh, and most of my colleagues didn't share my you know, political views. But they were terrific. They... Uh, he's come and he, and he shook my hand, he said, oh, congratulations. And, and everyone right up did, to, you know, all the way to, to, the, uh, you know, to, to the Vice-Chancellor, who right? I'm not sure if Peter Caldera had started as VC then, but anyway, everyone congratulated mm. Even the union did, the, yeah. So yeah. you know, everyone's very supportive, strangely. I thought, oh, they won't because they don't had, had support, <laughs> support you know my, my side of politics. But they're a bit surprised I think they a bit horrified that I won. <laughs> so was I. So was my pa- so were my parents. But yeah, it was a it was a moment when that one vote changes your life forever. Mm. It's never the same after that, Jody. I tell you, everything changed from that Sunday, the fifteenth of March nineteen ninety eight. Down in the convention centre. And that was it. And everything then since including Positions I mentioned before, everything has come from that one vote. Mm,
0: that is incredible. It's true, Brett. I'm just going to like be really blunt here. How is such a nice gentleman a member of the Liberal Party?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's um, the party's not all bad. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I, I, my parents were, you know, I mentioned the hard work, personal responsibility, thrift, very much like that. Quite conservative. I am too and I, I'm certainly into hard work and personal responsibility you know I've always been like that but when I was working here I think people should work hard I, I don't I <laughs> have relatives who don't believe that but that, I do and it was, I suppose that better reflected my view of the world and this will age me a lot to people listening to the podcast but when I was at uni' in the 80s 1980s as, as an undergraduate. Mm. We were fighting the Cold War, and I was very anti-communist, as my as my father was, and as my grandparents were. They were in the uh, Anti-Communist Labour Party. Became the DLP. Remember the Democratic Labour Party? Yep, I remember them. Right, DLP, and my father was sort of peripherally involved in that. So I was sort of ca- Catholic, but uh, yeah, by, by religion, not Catholic. Oh let me not pretend on this podcast that is not because I'm not, but but. It brought a certain political conservatism, and certainly an anti-communism. Catholicism did within the Labour Party, and you'd report that's a, yeah, you know, it's a matter of historical fact. And so, we really that was the that followed me through, and so yeah, I was very, right. I was very anti-communist at uni as an as an undergraduate. I was more anti-communist than I, back then. This is uh, we're talking the mid early mid 80s than I ever was, you know, pro-liberal. I didn't get to wear blue, you know, really more blue to class. No, Johnny, I, I, I was much more, you know, against the Soviets, against, you know, the Chinese, and against you know, communism that I that we all thought was imperiling the world. That's 40 years ago. Yeah. And it does date me, I know. Because people think, any communism what's that? I, uh, my nephew said it to me, what's that? But they, they don't have any reference for, for any. I must be the last one. I mean, it's a
0: different, like, it was a different time, a different kind of constructed threat
2: mm.
0: in that era yes. than.
2: That's why I joined the Liberal Party. That was because, of course, there are anti communists in the Labour Party. Of course, there were. But the, the, the clearest sort of route to anti communism was through the Liberal Party in many ways. Though my friends in the Labour Party, particularly on the Conservative side of the Labour Party, many of them Catholic, still, you know, the shoppies, those yep. unions and so forth. As I always used to tell my Brett, we were the ones that had to fight. Because the Labour Party was, as you know, had some, in the early days, you know, unions linked, affiliated with the Communist Party and so forth. It's easy for the Liberals, they would say. Yeah, We were the ones that had to sort of, you know, root out communism from the Labour Party and the rest of it. Oh, yeah, it was great. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) (laughs) Terrific stuff.
0: It seems to me that standing as a politician binds you, like in a dominant party,
1: Mm.
0: not as an independent really, joining any of the parties binds you to an ideology.
1: Mm.
0: How does that sit with you?
2: It's a a good question. It's a a fair question. Uh, It's sometimes difficult because you don't agree with everything. But... The leader of the party, um, John Howard, the leader of the party, and of course, Prime Minister, you know, he would always say, look, you know, you have to act as a team. And you sort of put your own... You're allowed to say whatever you like in the party room, that's fine. But publicly, you've going to be much more careful. And you do the right thing because you think, this will help the government, you know, and if, if I get marked as a ratbag, you know, this won't help my prospects, I'll Parliament. The Liberal Party had one great advantage of the Labor Party in this sense, that we could cross the floor, as I you know, as I have, and we all have in various things, and, and remain within the Liberal Party. In the Labor Party, you can't, as you mm. know, you get thrown out. So we have that, uh, I'm not saying it's everything, but there's a margin for movement within the Liberal Party where there isn't elsewhere. I was never threatened, I was never threatened with disendorsement, ever.
0: That's it's an incredible decision to cross the floor, though. What is that? Like, what does that hinge on for you? What tips you to the? I'm going to step away from the kind of protection of
2: this collective. You have to believe in it, and you have to be prepared. (laughs) Hopefully not to die for it, but you have to be prepared to take some flack. But, Johnny, I never suffered that much in Queensland. Because within the party, within the party in Queensland, I never had any problems. I might yeah. have had problems sometimes in Canberra, with some of my colleagues and so forth. But even there, not much. You know, I was very lucky, very fortunate in politics actually. But within the party, I here, for some reason, the membership never had a go at me. You know, I was a, you know the membership always thought I was all right, even if they thought, it's a bit quirky. And unusual. I don't. Know. I never had. You know, I was. There was never any sense that the membership were after me. And when they are, you're in trouble. Particularly in the Senate. you know, you're in real trouble. I think that the membership, the average man and woman in the party, thinks oh, this guy's hopeless. He mm. was a rat bag or whatever. Mm.
0: What's your big lessons around? I guess in politics, you have to hold a community. Like, you have to hold the attention and the trust and the faith of a community, which is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. What were your lessons around that, I guess?
2: Because the Senate is slightly divorced from the everyday challenges of the House of Representatives, yeah. with, you know, your local member. I live in Brisbane, so until recently it was Trevor Evans, was an LNP guy, now it's a Green, Greens, whole oh, Brisbane, where I live. And, you know, you're much more in the front line because people will buy you up at the, the supermarket and say, hey, you know, as a senator, no, you're more anonymous and you're so rem- sort of not removed. You still, still be elected, but you have, you're not subject to the, the, the daily challenges, mm. tensions and horrors as you are in the lower house, that, that makes sense. And it suited me because, <laughs> you know, I wasn't bailed up that often at Newfound Coles, you know. Occasionally I was.
0: I'm like, because people I, would grab
2: me and say, you know, you're Brett Mason.
0: Fix <laughs> <laughs> my problem. Yeah. I mean, like in on one sense I get that, that how, could be an, how that could be an advantage, but you still have to be able to win people almost from that mm-hmm. removed position. And I imagine that's... Like, that's a challenge to... In
2: that, you, you do, and, of course, you have to convince, you know, the, the, the party and then the, the, the electorate, of course, to win an election. You do. In the case of senators, the most important thing to do is to keep the party on side because they pre-select you. Yeah. And I never had a problem with that. I was lucky. That, you know, I had other issues, perhaps, but never that one. And I think the makeup of people who join political parties... You know, used to always say about the Conservative Party in Britain, true. Many years in the Liberal Party in Australia, that was made up of, you know, middle-aged, late middle-aged women, and that suited me fine. (laughs) That suited me fine because I, I, you know, I always had their respect, and I was courteous, and you know, politeness goes a long way. Mm, It really does with women. It goes, you know, often with men, it's a different. The only problem I ever had in politics. With men, it was, you know, middle-aged men. Not with young, not with young men. Not with, with old men. It was middle-aged men. The women were fine. I always say it to people. What was that about? Uh, because they probably didn't see me as sufficiently like them. Some were envious, you know, who's this who's this pipsqueak, you know, There's a bit of that. It got easier as I got older, I think. I respected more middle-aged men as I got older, as I got a bit grown, you know. But at first, no, that it was quite difficult. Many thought, oh, you know, he, he's a lightweight, he's, he's not going to be able to perform. Whereas the women, you know, nearly, nearly universally, were, were terrific. <laughs> I would never have got in. I would never went to Parliament. Never won endorsement. I never not have the support of women. And, and indeed, the young Liberals, so yeah. the young people.
1: Mm.
0: What did you hope you would achieve as a politician?
2: You hope to be, you know, you hope to make it oh, this sound trite, but, you know, for a better Australia, if not a better world, you, you hope to. I had tried to gear myself around education because I came from that background I was interested in it. And my first position in the ministry was this, you'll love, you'll love this, was, part, was was the end of the Howard government. It was Tony Abbott's parliamentary secretary when Tony was the Minister for Health. The end of the Howard government. And I got on very well with Tony. And he's actually not quite as he is. <laughs> Everyone's a bit horrified, but I, I always got on with Tony. Uh, well, nearly always. will come to that in a second. But and then when we lost governments, that's 07, remember John Howard lost, I was given parliamentary security, I an assistant minister it is called today, for education. And then and then stuck with that until I was made shadow minister for universities and research which is what I wanted mm. when we won in 2013 you know, I was a shadow minister I didn't get it because you know, it's not a secret anymore because Tony Abbott and then the Prime Minister of course he demoted me and then urged me off to Hague because as he later told me he believed I would beat George Brandis in the pre-selection and the way the ticket was structured <laughs> was... No, no, this is not a secret anymore. I can, I'm can i quite open about yeah this. With the National Party up the number two spot. We just yeah. had one and three. The George would have been three. And it's a long, long story, all this. And I won't bore you with it. Because it goes on for hours. Suffice to say, and it, it goes back several years, but suffice to say that Tony said to me, Brett, we thought you would win. And that we couldn't have... The then deputy leader, attorney general, and then shortly thereafter, the leader beaten by you in a pre selection because that would be bad for, he said, factional unity. Uh, And so, oh no, that's what happened. And and he was quite honest. It It wasn't at the time, this this happened later when I got back from the Netherlands in 2018. He was totally honest with me, which is why I respect Tony. Mm. Because, you know, you're talking about a, a former prime minister someone who won government from the Labour Party sitting in Parliament House, this is late 2018, saying to me, Brett, look, he, he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it all had to happen. And then he was honest. He told me why he'd done it. Jody, not everyone will do that. Not everyone will do that. They will just say, oh, Brett, it's a long time ago now. Have a cup of tea. Let's move on. But he had sufficient courage, and I think, I, ho- I hope this is right, sufficient respect for me to say, all right, you just sat back and thought, I'll tell you. And I said, Well I knew that, Tony. I knew that's why he did it. He said, I know you knew, but I couldn't tell you because mm. that was giving the game away. I always respected Tony for that. So even to this very day, even though that to be blunt, that was the end of my political career. The second he demoted me and then, you know, sure he offered, you know, I was later offered the Hague, which is a wonderful diplomatic post and I and I loved it. It was the end of my political career, and I'd hoped to be, getting back to the, your question, universities and research. Yeah. And I would have loved that as a ministry. But larger factors, you know, saving George, why are they, You know, God, what? Looking back, you'd think, why would you have bothered?
0: Why? I, <laughs> I mean, that could have totally changed the course of so many things.
2: Everyone says that, you know. But at the time, let me tell you... People around Tony, the Prime Minister, as he then was in 2013, were desperate to get rid of me because they thought he's going to create a problem. And George's problem was he was never, ever popular within the party. Yeah, right. And I don't even need to explain because everyone knows him. Mm. And they, of course he wouldn't have been because they know him. Mm. Does that make sense? I don't have to explain it. People just laugh like you did. Yeah. So it wasn't a contest. Who are you gonna vote for? You gonna vote for me or gonna vote for him? And everyone goes, well you know
0: why did they why were they so desperate to keep him?
2: Because they thought that if he wasn't he would he'd create hell, you know, factional <laughs> hell. He was on the, the notional <laughs> left of the party, it would create hell for the, the Prime Minister. I think Tony also believed that it would he would be a buffer, that George Lake was somehow a buffer against Malcolm Turnbull. Coming back. Yeah, okay. Does that make sense, you yep. see? That's his, so he saw George as, uh, as that. He never defended his performance like, a, you know, uh, Tony knew George way back at Oxford, mm. you know, back in the, God, the early 80s. But so And he knew that his judgment was suspect. He knew he'd be accident-prone as he became. He knew that he wouldn't necessarily be an appealing spokesman. He knew, and his judgment was always in question, he knew all those problems that we all now know were George's issues, but he thought if I'm going to survive a you know a challenge a, la- a challenge later on from Malcolm Turnbull to keep Malcolm at bay, I need to have some of the notion left on side. And of course, in the end, he, he did save George. Saved him you know, a couple of times actually. I won't go into that in different contexts, but he he, he did save him. And then of course George voted for Malcolm Turnbull. I know, well. right?
0: Like, Brett, could have Brett Mason saved the chaos in the Liberal Party?
2: No, no. no. But it's funny. You got, Johnny, you don't know. You know, one door, I was furious at the time, and I'm you know, not going to you know, jolly you along or your listeners along and say I was like OK about it. I was not. And I was very frank with Tony and some of his staff. But when they, you know, tried to... Ease the blow by saying, Look, you know, you can go to the Hague, which is, is a great post. And I don't, don't deny that. It makes it a bit easier. And I'm always asked, I've been asked many times, why didn't you just take him on? Well, this is the problem. Who just knows the minister? The Prime Minister. Yeah. Right? The Liberal, you know, the Liberal Party, it's, it's very simple Prime Minister, or well, the leader of the party. He could have kept me on as uh, I was uh, Assistant Minister, Parliamentary Secretary to Julie Bishop, Assistant Minister of Foreign Affairs. I could have been sacked at any moment. Yeah. And then it leaked. It could have been leaked that I was hopeless right before the pre-selection. Yeah. And you can't stop that. You can't, can't, yeah. So I had nothing to hold on with. If I And I would, it was likely I would have had to beat the leader or the deputy leader in the Senate from the backbench. Yeah. This was, you know, this, was, this was deliberate. If I'd been a minister, I would have beaten George for sure. And Tony admitted that. But they softened the blow by the Hague. And then, you know... You can't whinge. Politics is you can't whinge anyway because you're not owed anything. They did that, the party, and you know, it was wonderful. I don't deny it. And then I was offered, you know, chair chair of the National Library, and I'm still there now. I mentioned earlier on that everything, you know, this line, I'm still there now, and and I love it. But I can tell you, Jody, I would not have been offered that if I hadn't been, if I had played up. I talk about it
0: now.
2: Yeah. I'm happy to talk about it. But if I'd if, if spoken about it publicly back then, I think these opportunities would have...
0: Would have disappeared. And I wouldn't have written... You know, the, the, the amazing book.
2: No, I wouldn't have written that. No, sure, I wouldn't have. I'd probably still be in Parliament, probably looking bedraggled, you know, upset and forlorn, you know.
0: Is the point of being a politician, though, not just to, like, do your time and collect your cushy retirement fund?
2: Well, it's a... T- it's it's a tough game. Um, there's no super now. You know, in the old days, this was a really good super scheme. There's not many more, as you're probably aware. It's like it's a bit like the common public service super scheme. So it's not that, yeah, it's generous enough, but not that generous. There's no defined benefit anymore. You you can only go into politics because you want to help your country. You you can't do it for money. You really, it's such a tough profession. Mm. Some people do do it, I think, to, sort, to somehow you know, vindicate an unhappy life. There's a few of those in, in Parliament you know, that aren't very happy people. You know, lonely people that have had other issues and somehow they think that their life will be affirmed through politics. I always say that people, don't go into politics looking for love. The public may like you for a while. For a while. They might, if you, if you... Yeah, Bob Hall, yeah. I think, it's, it's loved a bit, but even then, it always it always goes. Yeah. And don't look for love in politics. Uh, a <laughs> golden rule. So I, I think most politicians of whatever party are well-motivated. I do.
0: Then tell me... They care. OK, do. so this is going to be the question that you're going to hate me for, bro, mm. and I'm down with it. What then is with all of the, like sex drugs and rock and roll in the chaos of current oh. parliament and the you know the corruption and the like if people are well motivated yeah what's your take on that
2: well it's, it's difficult isn't it? it is difficult i, don't I agree the, the sex drugs and rock and roll from my time I, <laughs> I must have missed it uh, uh, because most are so bloody busy. Politicians are very, very, very people. busy people. And, you know, you'd agree on that, I think. And, and you know, on those on the front bench, the ministers are extraordinarily busy. You know, even getting ten minutes with a minister is you know hard. So there's not much time for the sex, drugs, and, and rock and roll. But look, clearly, and this is true, about there are cultural issues in Parliament, and I think it is it is harder for women. And I say this, I'm not, I'm not a caftan wearing trendy at all for this reason people get bullied in parliament mm. and it's not just women when i went in i was bullied you know i'm not complaining yeah i, I nearly knew i would you know i looked a little bit different you know a little bit hopeless and <laughs> feeble perhaps i wasn't towards the end let me tell you but but back then i was and people try to push you around and i won't tell you why i stopped doing that with me but they did mm. but with women as a A very senior woman in the Liberal Party said to me, Brett, what what you did to stop them from bullying you, women can't do. you're sort of tall and you have a very loud voice and they won't, uh, with with women it's a lot, lot tougher. Mm. And there is a slightly sort of boarding school mentality about it, but most people are, are, are decent and reasonable. But bullying does occur. And I know generally women are the ones who complain about it. But can I just say, Judy, it happens to everyone. Oh, look, in, I th- in one way or another. You I know.
0: just think, like, politics is a game of strategy and winning. And anything that's a game of strategy and winning completely lends itself to inappropriate exertions of power, which is totally what bullying is. I'm just going to flex my muscle however I can to get what I mm-hmm. want or... Perceive that I need. So, do you have any theories on how we fix that?
2: Oh, it's your it's, it's human nature, and it's, it, it's, as you say. You're talking about power, and it's a competitive profession. It's not merit-based like that. It's about you know, utility always beats ability. Expedience mm. always beats everything else. But you have to accept that when you go into it. Yeah. I can say with a hundred percent certainty, it is not about eloquence. It is just not about those things. It's just not. And that's okay. The only time you get annoyed is when it's a bit insulting when someone says it is about merit. Yeah, I oh, no, it's clearly it's not, because X, Y, and Z can't even yeah. make a speech in Parliament. They, they, they haven't got the ability to communicate. They might be quite senior, but there are other reasons why. Yeah. And that's fine. that's fine. I'm not even objecting to it. What I'm saying is... Let's it, call it what it is. Exactly. It's utility.
0: That's really interesting. What's the difference between being a politician and a diplomat?
2: <laughs> it's funny many of the skills are the same uh, in a sense you are you know, the face of your country and the posting that you're sent to and the skills of, of, of cajoling charming perhaps um, influencing and advocating are all political skills they're even mm-hmm. legal skills at, at, at one level and they become diplomatic skills And so politicians can make can, not always, but can make good diplomats. the The difference is that, that it, is that it's it, it's a gentler, it's a gentle a gentle pursuit. Mm. And the trick is t- to be influential in the country that that you're uh, working in, where you're representing Australia's interests, is to att- try to attach yourself to important people in that country. And Australia, in the Netherlands, was was, was probably our most like-minded partner in Europe. You know, in terms of trade, MH17, you'd recall, mm. was an issue we had to deal with, it was a big issue. And during my time, I was blessed that Her Majesty's, the King and Queen of the Netherlands, had a, a, a state visit to Australia and which of course I accompanied them on and it was wonderful. Australia was always very well regarded and I had great access (laughs) uh, in in, in the Netherlands and I think it helped that I was a politician because they all knew I was Mm. and you stick out a bit because you're quite confident and very energetic and the way you speak. It's quite different from the way that public servants speak. It's a very you know it's <laughs> it's very charged. It's good, bad, right, wrong, black, white, you know, you speak very simply. And I loved it. And I always felt this was how kind of corny, but I did feel really privileged and honoured to represent Australia in The Hague. I really did. Not, you know, people think it's a beautiful house a resident, you know. Yes, and you were well looked after and sure. But, you know, to represent your country overseas is a big deal.
0: I feel like if you're going to say that it cushioned the blow of what is such a profound career loss and the end of something, a political career that you're really invested in and that Mm. you'd worked so hard for, there must have been something about it that excited you for it to soften the blow. What was it that you thought you could achieve or do or that was exciting about that?
2: It was busy, I didn't have much time to look back because I was so busy, you know, I'd never been a like that before <laughs> and I was, I was lucky because I had such good people to work with. You know, my, my deputy and was deputy head of mission, a wonderful woman, she's just been appointed to Ambassador somewhere else now, but she was a, we had a very, very strong team and that helped. And because we were so busy, and it was the royal visit to Australia was you know, upon us in, within eighteen months or so, I didn't yeah, really too much time to reflect on you know the batch sort of you know the difficult things. Mm. And frankly, I think the prime minister was happy to get me out of the country because then you're not hanging around and causing you know, mm. problems. But it, the problem is when you when you leave like that, it gives you. At one level, your career is cut off just when you're about to get something. Yeah. You know, and I was a good age. I had a lot of it. energy. We're talking now seven, uh, seven or so years ago, nearly what, nine since we won the election, since the coalition won. Uh, I had a lot of energy. Mm. You know, I wasn't decrepit. You know, and I wasn't someone about to give it away. In fact, I was it really my prime. Mm. You know, and I hated that. I had to. You know, I remember saying to Tony, "I'm going now. Now that I'm going, to, you know, all these things are in the offing." Because to save, you know, George's pre-selection. What it did do in a strange way is you get this strange sort of street cred. I was, at, I was somewhere the other day, I um, was launching uh, this book, uh, one of the launches, and, and people came up to me and said, oh, you're that guy that had to leave because they were trying to save George Brandis.
1: Does that make sense? You get yeah, this sort totally. of strange
2: street cred yeah. about, oh, you're that guy. I was at a function with the National Library and someone did that. So you're sort of known as the guy that had to leave So it gives you, uh, yeah, the strange street credibility that otherwise you wouldn't have. I mean, also, like,
0: I feel like you left at a time when... Sure, you're in government, but chaos is descending. And so in some ways, maybe you missed some of the labelling of the... And there's chaos in politics everywhere, Mm. but particularly in, you know, the former, former government and, you know, the Labor Party before that and, like, all of that. But you missed some of that kind of chaos that came with the mm, Liberal sure. Party and you maybe rep- remains some of your reputation intact as a result.
2: Well, yes, I suppose it's true. I didn't have to put up with you know, the, the leadership well, constant leadership changes. We did have, I, I suppose you're right, we, we, we did have a called Canberra for a while, the the coup the, the, the capital of the world or something, you know. And I remember overseas uh, being in The Hague when Tony Abbott lost What's that, September of 2015? Mm. Not long after, in fact, just a few weeks after I'd arrived in The Hague, Tony... <laughs> oh, my
0: God, the timing of that is just no, no, outstanding, no, outstanding well, isn't it?
2: it's it sort of sad. So I did feel a bit sorry for him at one level, but, you know, this is the problem. You know, he, he staked... He backed the other guy, hoping that there was be a But mm. of course, it, it didn't help, and uh, you know Tony was was defeated. I don't know. You have to ask him if he regrets the decision. But it was a very tough time for the for the coalition. And Malcolm, of course, had the double dissolution election. you recall, him just one yeah. one, one, one seat, I think. And we had the double dissolution, and. 2016, and by the, by the end of that year, already there were calls for George to go. You recall, you know, mm. he started, and then he sort of hung on, and then he did everything just remain and flew to Sydney and saw, you know, Prime, then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And then he had to go, and of course, he was given London, you recall. But really, he only stayed, he was only really viable for about 18 months after mm. I left, not long, because he. The, the problems that were so apparent even to Tony Abbott came from the front, forefront. So for me it was tough because I thought, God, you know, if I could have just stayed, you would have gone and would have all been, but, you know, this is what happens. There's a, there's a, a point of, you know, a junction of, of instances where I didn't have much room to move. Mm. You know.
0: It's interesting to me. I mean, like what it's like to be a diplomat at a time when... Our politics And our politics has been in our people for quite some time. But, I mean, I have very good friends in the Netherlands who I would talk to regularly and they would be going, what is going on with your politicians?
2: <laughs> I didn't talk so much about... Because Australia has always had a very stable, political system, as you, as you know. But because we kept changing the leaders... Yes! I, 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 I changed my speech about... <laughs> that I used to give to... Uh, yeah, h- high school students and the rest about how stable Australia was <laughs> because it didn't resonate. We are not! Yeah, it didn't resonate so well. And, of course, people couldn't understand how the Prime Minister could be removed, but the coalition remained in, yeah. in power, as it were. You know, people didn't understand that. So some people did yeah, The system similar, the British system similar to ours, the Westminster system, but it was difficult. But Australia tends to have internationally people see it generally positively Mm. i didn't have too much trouble dealing with i was lucky my timing was good australia's been criticized as you know in recent years about various things but that was just after my time Mm. julie bishop was always right you know australia is generally well regarded and does punch well above its weight Mm. people would wait to see what what does Australia think? And sure, people know our alliances. So it's, it's no secret. But we take a slightly different view often on things, a nuanced view on, on, on issues. We didn't blindly simply follow on every issue. You know, in the United States or the United Kingdom. It was never like that. So I, no, I, I like being that being ambassador in, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. It was a terrific job. I have to say. It's probably the most enjoyable <laughs> job I've ever had. I mean, the
0: Netherlands is, is amazing. <laughs> it's, it's a, a, it's a great gorgeous country. part of the great part of the world. And like, just mm. like I know that you have an interest in history and historically in the, the role that it's kind of played is a really interesting kind of mm. nation. So it strikes me that all of these jobs that you've had in this career that you've built, Brett, are about a very outgoing, confident man. But I hear you say often that you're lucky I get the idea that maybe the persona that is required of you is not necessarily your natural disposition
2: no it's funny you know the the dream days I would have when I was in politics would be I'd get back from Canberra (laughs) and I'd wake up on a Saturday morning you know late hopefully and you know if I didn't have to do anything I would I I remember just I would sit on a couch and read till three or four in the afternoon and go for a long jog. And that to me was bliss. It's not, I actually like people, but I found, I still do find the demands of dealing with a lot of people exhausting. And so for me, I like being by myself a lot of the time and, and reading and even just being by myself and walking by myself or running or exercising. I'm not naturally, people th- assume that I'm naturally sort of like that has to have people around me all the time. Well, those that know me will know that's not right. Mm. Yeah, Brett would rather be like myself. <laughs> it doesn't mean I dislike people, it's not, it's not that, but I, I'm, I'm often exhausted by having to deal with with people. Now, no doubt I'm exhausting for them as well, this is no doubt, but you adapt to the job you're in whether it is as a prosecutor, or as a lecturer, as a politician, or as a diplomat. All those positions you you, you have to adapt and you, you learn the skills. If you don't adapt, you don't thrive.
0: Mm. It seems to me there's an element of performance in that.
2: Yeah, there is. Definitely performance as you know, a prosecutor, when in, my, in my 20s, it certainly is as a lecturer performance art uh, in Parliament. Oh, clearly, clearly in a, in Parliament, it's all performance. It's, people yeah. say, you know, I oh, must, you know, you must hate everyone. No, it's just it's 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 the theatre of the chamber, the drama of the mm. chamber. Well, well, the people in the House of Reps would say there's never any drama in the Senate, But no, there is this 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 theatre, and you know, I got a long word with it. Colleagues on the opposite side, you know, Senator Wong, Penny Wong, Prime Minister, leader of the government in the Senate, she be, if she was here, she'd be the first to admit it. There's this, this is a lot a theatre. But outside the chamber, outside what you can see publicly, that's where the real work done in, in the committees in the Senate, mm. and it's where it's quite friendly. You, know, you and I would just say, look, we need to do something on this, and we would come. You know, people are sensible. You know, people aren't mad, and oh, let's 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 agree to do this to get something done. In the chamber, it's black and white, good and bad, right and wrong. In committees, it's not. It's how do we find a way forward? But
0: does that make it not real, the performance of it?
2: It's it's dramatised.
0: For what end?
2: For political ends. So because it, it, it might suit people being elected. So, you know, a good example of this at the moment is the American midterm. midterm. Yeah. People, you know, many people saying that in the Republican Party that in the 2020 presidential election was a, was a hoax, but it didn't happen that President Trump didn't lose and the rest of it. Now, how many people actually believe that? I'm not sure. But certainly many of the candidates the Republican Party are saying that because it has, it's particularly advantageous and uh, has resonance within Republican supporters, conservative supporters, that that's correct. And so people will say it, even though many would think, I'm not quite sure that's right. So you know, you, you do you say things to attract voters, not necessarily because you you believe it hundred percent.
0: Mm. Like I, you know, I accept and I understand that there's drama, and I think there's far more performativity about life on every level than we ever really want to acknowledge mm. openly. Openly, but I hear, like I just hear resonating in that. How do how then do we trust it? How do we trust a political system that's so strategic and dramatic.
2: Well, it is a problem, isn't it? And hence, that's why public trust in institutions is, well, someone said the other day, withering. It it is a problem. Mm. And I I even worry more more broadly that belief in democracy, its value, it's worth defending if necessary fighting for. If that is not as strong as it once was. Mm. You know, when, I, when I was at university, you know, forty years ago. Today, people take it for granted. You know, institutions are are, are, are wrecked, a are collapsed. It's some some of my more, you know, uh, they would say progressive friends say that it's all just, you know, it's a, it's colonialist and it's not worth saving anyway. Well, I would never go that far. I'd say there are problems, clearly, but it's better than the better than the alternatives. I
0: mean, like this is what it comes down to, right? What's the alternative?
2: Yes, yes. And, and, and democracy, I admit, it is a, it, it, it is a showcase of, of strategising an approach to win votes which isn't necessarily you know, congruent with, uh, with, with reality mm. or at least the best public policy. It, it's not always like that. But on the other hand, of course, democracy has enormous strengths that it, it enforces accountability ultimately whether it's the press, whether it's the parliament or whoever. And, you know, I'd much rather have
0: that. I mean, like, I think oh, awesome. even this disillusionment in public systems mm. is an expression of democracy in that it's people saying, hang on, guys, you got to do better mm. in this spot. And if you're going to carry on like this crazy mob, then you can expect us to be unhappy. Yep. And there will be consequences yep. as a result of unhappiness. I,
2: and we'll turf you all out the next election. <laughs> you know, or, or whatever it is, you know. Whatever. More chaos. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. But at least, you know, at least we, we have
0: the... Well... I 100% agree. And, like, we have the capacity to be able to say this is performative nonsense mm. that we need to think through about what we're actually achieving through this performative nonsense mm. that's carrying... I mean anyone who talks about our question time and the, the craziness that happens in question times and that it's just publicly broadcast for anyone to see and, you know, it's the envy of much of the world to be able to have that level of open debate mm. in a, a hall of government is incredible. Why bother with the performance? Like, why exert that exhausting emotional energy and step outside of where you kind of organically sit?
2: Because it it resonates. You know, passion, enthusiasm resonates, even if it might not always be sincerely held, passion, or enthusiasm. (laughs) So, but often it is. You know, I don't want to be too cynical about it. Uh, And, you know, when you lecture, if you're enthusiastic and passionate about it, if you're, you're, you know, whether you're writing or Mm. or talking, passion and enthusiasm and colour helps. And... In a democracy, you need to attract. You know, need to sort of you need to attract attention and sell your message. Mm. So it's it's good to have you know to be waving colourful flags. You know,
0: I also think this is like something I think that we can share is this notion of you won't always be comfortable doing whatever you choose to do, and you will have to step outside of your comfort zones and do things in ways that you're uncomfortable with just to, to get where you need to go where you want to go if, like.
2: your students you teach won't know what they're capable of until they step outside their comfort zone yeah if, if i could go back to 1980 when i was 17 years old going into anu uh, the first time in my first political science one you know if, if you'd said in 40 years time brett you would have done these things. I always said, no, I couldn't because I'm just not up for that. Like, it's, all, it's all too hard. It's all too dramatic. But it's funny. You only really mature and grow when you feel sick with anxiety that you you don't think you can go on. It's that, with this book, for example, you know, that shocking anxiety about is this, is this expressed sufficiently well? Is it still simple? You know, um, Will the publisher like it? Then will it sell? <laughs> All these things. You're sick with anxiety. And if you don't push yourself, if you don't take a risk, even taking a risk, you won't know. Mm. And I look back, I mentioned uh, right at the beginning, I won that by a vote, that pre-selection. That was so risky mm. because I didn't... I wasn't sure I'd win. I can certainly say that. There was no certainty. And if I had lost, which I nearly did, I would have been, you know, people would have thought thought I was a rat bag and, you know, thrown to the winds, you know. It's so risky, but you have to be prepared to lose. You have to be prepared to fail. If you're not, you won't grow and you won't learn and you won't, you know, you won't scale a mountain because you won't try.
0: But failure is also, like, I think failure is not the end of the world. It's not. Like, failure is an... Is an opportunity to reset and rethink, and learn, and learn. And Ooh. I think we have created this world where we're telling people to be scared of failure rather than understand failure as opportunity.
2: That's 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 dead right. You know, that was the old saying: "It's better to try and fail than never no, try it tried it all. at all. That is is absolutely true. You have to accept that you may well fail. And it's, I know it's awful, and none of us like to fail. You, you might be writing your PhD, and you might think, after two years, look, oh, I haven't got this. Well, you know what? Maybe you won't. Maybe it is best. It might be your cup of tea. It might just be best to, to give it away. But it's not the end of the world. It's least, really not. It's not the end of the world. You know, you, you have to learn that. You you. know, you've, people try to people far smarter than me have tried to get into parliament but never made it for all sorts of reasons mainly luck and timing you know it's it's a lot of luck in it but that's just life yeah it, life's not fair It really I is think certainly <laughs> isn't it, it just is not like you know but you have to make most of the opportunities
0: yeah it's true you
2: have to say well I can't do that but I can do that yeah Brett, tell me about your book oh Wizards of Oz, how Oliphant and Flory helped win the war and shape the modern world. Launched again beautifully in Brisbane here the other day by the Vice Chancellor, Professor Margaret Shield and it's it's selling really well.
0: Well I've bought two copies. Oh so. did you? <laughs> it's
2: about just very briefly, it's about Mark Oliphant and Howard Flory. How the Americans always said that there were three great innovations during the Second World War. There was Penicillin there was the atomic bomb and microwave radar. And indeed, it's commonly said in literature that microwave radar won the war and the atomic bomb finished it. And Jody, those two innovations, microwave radar and the atomic bomb came out of Mark Oliphant's laboratory in Birmingham within a fortnight of each
0: mm.
2: other. They're that consequential. It's
0: quite remarkable.
2: Quite remarkable. And of course within 100 days of course penicillin out of Oxford University with, with Howard Florey. Mm. Most people know a little bit about Howard Florey, but when you know I, I've spoken a lot about this book over the last uh, little while. I often start with that. Start with the simple fact that people always argue that it was it was uh, my, the innovation that, that won the war was microwave radar, and it was the atomic bomb that finished it. And we go, Yeah, that's probably right. People are knowledgeable. So well, both of them came out of, of Mark Olfan's laboratory in Australia, yeah. in two weeks of each other in 1940 in Birmingham. And when you say that, people go, But, but it was the Americans. But in fact, the ideas were generated. From Birmingham from Mark Oliphant's laboratory. Then they had to persuade, as I say, in the second half of the book, they made the inventions. In the second half of the book, it's how Mark Oliphant and Florey, unbeknownst to each other, went in towards the end of 1941 and had to sell the ideas to the United States. They had to get the Americans, bully the Americans into making the atomic bomb because they thought the Nazis were going to get there first. And Howard Florey had to persuade American pharmaceutical companies and the American government to to make penicillin, whereas, in fact, it had only been tried on six human beings. Yeah, wow. Two of whom had died. Wasn't <laughs> a very good case history.
0: Not great odds, is it? No, <laughs> it wasn't a good case
2: history. But in both cases, they succeeded. It was yeah. a bit easier with microwave radar. That was a bit easier. But they succeeded, and the world changed as a result. We had, by the end of the war, by D-Day, we had penicillin available. Mm. We had microwave radar up and running pretty well by 1942, 43, and, of course, the atomic bomb by... August 1945, Mm. which I know is a far more ambiguous, you know, uh, bequest. But nonetheless, I I argue in the book that Mark Mark Oliphant and the the physicists that got together to develop the theoretical proof did it because they thought the Germans were going to get there first.
0: I want to talk about that. But I want to say... I've not yet finished the book, but the thing that comes through to me as I'm reading it is I feel like you have a real affection for these men.
2: (laughs) I do. I like them.
0: (laughs) And you've you've found something in them that's resonated with
2: Mm. you. They're quite different. You know, Mark Oliphant became governor of South Australia, and he was a very, very (laughs) direct person, Mark Oliphant man I actually saw him once when I, when I was young yeah amazing in Canberra yeah I was at the shops with my dear mother and man, white hair and white teeth all white and uh, he was well built you know quite tall and he was someone not to be taken lightly he was quite charming but could also be very direct and so when he was in the United States <laughs> dealing with those courtly Americans He was very direct, Jody, and Mm -hmm. said, you know, worse to this effect, probably probably used his exact words, actually, if you don't build this bloody bomb, the Nazis are going to get there first and they're going to bomb you. You know, that was sort of (laughs) the language he was using. Uh, And he stirred up so much trouble, of course, in the end, and with some help uh, from a friend of his they got to President Roosevelt in the end, of course, and Roosevelt Mm -hmm. started the Manhattan Project. Howard Flory is a different character, much more reserved. didn't like the limelight at all, but, but brilliant and driven, both driven, Flory perhaps even more so. He didn't have a particularly happy married married life, but he he's Australia's greatest benefactor to humanity.
0: Yeah.
2: He would have saved something like 200 million lives. And, you know... That is such a huge accomplishment. He's probably the greatest Australian ever born. And the most consequential in many ways during the war, clearly, who developed the weapons that won it and then finished it, was Mark Oliphant. Mm. So the book is about two of them. And, of course, they were childhood friends. And they knew each other throughout their lives. So Mm. writing the book, it isn't just about some, you know, Someone said to me, two middle-aged white white guys, mid-century, middle class. (laughs) I said, yes, but they're highly consequential. (laughs) There's more to it
0: than that. (laughs) It strikes me with these guys that also, like, what they're interested in is science. Mm. And they go chasing science because they're passionate about science. But they also have to perform in roles that they seem to be deeply uncomfortable with on some level because they have to mm. achieve something that is outside of science.
2: That is dead right. In fact, it, uh, not everyone reads the book so closely. People are, are, are interested in the discoveries. And of course, that's that's science and you know, the, the theoretical proof for the atomic bomb. It's awful in on one level, but it's brilliant at another level. Mm. As a matter of physics and engineering, it's brilliant making the bomb back in 19... 19- 45. and microwave radar was a brilliant piece of kit, as the, the Americans call it. The greatest, the greatest single piece of hardware ever to land in American shores. It was just quite in the official history. I mean, that's a, that's microwave radar, and obviously penicillin, you know, obviously 200 million lives it saved over the last 80 years. But in some ways, even more importantly than those discoveries, as you're implying was the advocacy required to get them built during the war so they had an impact on the yeah. war. That's, in a way, you know, chapter nine years, Aussie stirrers, about both Oliphant and Flory going to America and saying, we can't build these in Britain because we haven't got the, the, the manufacturing capacity to do any of this. If you don't do it, there's, there's not gonna be any penicillin, there's not gonna be any microwave radar, and there certainly won't be an atomic bomb. And it took the Americans and their engineering and their creativity and their logistical capacity the Americans have, you know, to do it, and they did it. Mm. So you're quite right, they're not just great scientists. You yeah, know, once a Nobel laureate, um, Florian and Mark Ollivan a brilliant scientist in his own right. They're advocates. Mm. And they, there's, I to say, they're salesmen of of, of yep. their projects. And they did that brilliantly, and in a way, that part of the book, to me, was even more exciting because they're over in America at the same time, unbeknownst to each other, talking to some of the same people. It's incredible, close to President Roosevelt, yeah. saying, this is going to be done, otherwise, you know, uh, Germans are going to get the bomb. We need, we have to have microwave radar in the, in, in the, in the planes. We're losing the Battle of the Atlantic. We, the, the U-boats are sinking. And, of course, as soon as they got microwave radar up in the bombers, they sunk all the U-boats. Yeah. And we won the Battle of the Atlantic. So... It was critical. But they, two scientists, were well, the principal advocates.
0: I mean, the other thing that strikes me as them as scientists is I feel like you can feel in them the conflict of the discoveries, particularly around the bomb and mm. the mm. the conflict of we recognise this is a horribly destructive weapon that is going to cause so much trauma and pain But we have to weigh up against... You know, if the Nazis get it first, Mm. they have a different morality, a different... ethic, And there's actually this competing ethical thinking going on in the science of... And I just think... Like, I just think that's remarkable. Mm. And I know it shouldn't be, but I think we want to create this science as being this kind of objective, abstract thing. And this is such a classic example of like these two Aussie blokes having to think critically and ethically through these things with massive
2: ramifications
0: mm. and accept the responsibility of that.
1: Yeah,
0: I don't know how I'd go. How do you think? How do you think they dealt with that?
2: Well, it's a good question, you know. Oliphant, in a in a way, never really resolved it, Jody. He he even said, you know, I'm half war criminal and half war hero. Yeah. Hero for obvious reasons. He came up with something that finish the war against Japan. And yet also you know, killing a hundred thousand people with a bomb is not a joyous occasion. I and mean, then doing it twice. And even more than that. Lumbering humanity with yeah. with truly an existential problem. Though of course it would have happened, I mean let's be frank, it would have happened at some stage there. But he felt very responsible because the the the, the theoretical proof came from his laboratory Mm. and he never really got over it he never reconciled the two the the war hero and and, and, and the war criminal he he was for making the bomb he didn't seem to be for dropping the bomb Mm. some physicists were uh, Dr Edward Teller, most notably. Of course, they didn't build a hydrogen bomb. But he never answered that question. It was something he had to live with, and he lived a long time, Mark Olyphant, who died in the year 2000. Jeez. Yeah, 98 he died. He was a very old man. It's incredible. Yeah, extraordinary figure, but someone who never really came to terms with it. And you can understand
0: why. I... I think that's really fair, though, because I feel like those are the questions that we're still... Like, I don't think we've reconciled that as a society. Like, we're still... Like, who gets the nukes and the threats of the nukes? And it's become this, this global narrative that kind of can be distilled down to the science of one Australian guy who grew up in Adelaide <laughs> in a fairly average very, very existence. Average. Yeah,
2: very average.
0: Like, I think that's just incredible. I would ordinarily ask people, Brett, about their favorite theorist theory or piece of work, but I'm going to ask you about your favorite politician
2: oh that's a oh, it's it's very difficult um I suppose you know Lincoln's my favorite American, I suppose Winston Churchill's my favorite <laughs> Brit. <laughs> Yeah, I went to Churchill, a great writer too, of course. But Australians, it's very hard. Because yeah. I've liked most of them, you know. I I sort of like John Howard. I, I like Tony, Tony Abbott. I like, no, there's not many... I don't, I, <laughs> no,
0: I don't, Is there don't. anybody you don't like, no. Brett? Don't actually answer that
2: question. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's not, most, you know, I, I... I I do. In fact, I... And, and some that were not very senior on the other side who didn't become Prime Minister like Kim Beasley I really like you know Mr Beazley's a great fellow so it, it, I just might be saying that but I, it's such a tough job I suppose if you've been in Parliament you realise how difficult it is and the demands of it that you do make a lot of allowances for people mm. and even if it doesn't always suit you as it didn't always you understand looking back from their perspective what they had to go through and a sort of everyday challenges and choices they have to make. And for most of them, most of the time, it's about keeping the show on the road and the greater good. It's not about justice for individuals, let me mm. tell you. It's just not about that.
0: Look, it's so hard at that level to... You can't account for the individual. Who, then, is your favourite Prime Minister?
2: Oh, of Australia or...? Of Australia. Oh, gee, it's hard. difficult. I... I I have a lot of respect for John Howard, a lot of respect. I think Menzies, the current book I'm writing is a lot about, you know, John Curtin plays, a, and, and I have a lot of respect for mm-hmm. for, 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 for John Curtin. You now I think too, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, a lot of what they did still you know, they changed Australia. And their deregulatory approach is one, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with. So I have enormous respect for Bob Walker and of course Paul Keating who's, who's still with us. I think we've been generally blessed with good leaders in this country. Generally. And and even Gough, I said, sort of, you know, I think I prefer Gough as an ex Prime Minister.
0: I think he's very charming,
2: Mr. Woodham. Very charming fellow. Yeah, very. Mm.
0: What's your top tips for students surviving at university?
2: Look, you know, try to do something you enjoy. Try to study something you enjoy. And it's, whether it's studying or whether it's work, there are always going to be really tough times. You have to simply work through it because you, you won't reach the summit unless you understand that a couple of times you're going to run out of oxygen on the way up mm. and it's going to be tough. It's always easy to say, oh, it's too hard, it's too tough, I hate it, and walk away. That's easy. The tougher bit is to stick at it. And if I can stick at it, anyone can. I'm not as smart. But I, you know, I don't mind working hard. That's, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Mm-hmm.
0: Brett, I'm going to say that if somebody had said to me, that I would sit for an hour and a half and talk to a former Liberal senator (laughs) as the uh, left-wing bleeding heart I am, I would scoff at them with derision. But I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you and I would happily do so again at any time. And I just... You are a genuinely remarkable human and I appreciate your generosity of spirit and I think there is a real kindness in you that I honestly did not expect to find in a Liberal
2: (laughs) senator. Thanks for having me, Jodie. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been a real pleasure. Very
0: much appreciate it.
1: This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Associate Professor Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams, that's me. Music by Poddington Bear. And this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.